You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I wanted to talk a little bit about systems design. And I know that you've been thinking about this and you have, what's it when you, you come up with a, a shortened word, a mnemonic? You have a mnemonic or something like that? I don't know if it's a mnemonic or if you just, if it's, it's a, then you have to be able to pronounce a mnemonic. My mnemonic's just the 3D process for machine learning systems design. So is that a mnemonic? I don't know. I'm terrible at these things. Anyway, if it's a mnemonic, it's pronounced duh, duh. <laughs> uh, the 3D. So, yeah, actually, I think something that's very interesting as we've produced these techniques that can do certain things, they're not general intelligence by any stretch of the imagination, but we have tools that can take data-driven tasks and allow us to do things like recognize faces and images or objects and images or speech but what people really want is you know in some sense that's not useful till it's placed in a context so one of the things people are trying to do i think is improve existing processes by composing a number of these type of algorithms together search systems would be an interesting example they have many sort of you know search has a, decomposes the problems around search into many different parts like you know uh, recognizing named entities and and all these feed into wider algorithms they're probably very complex machine learning systems design is how i call it but let's be clear that this is um got software engineering right in there as a heart and an observation that i make is our current approaches to systems design and, and other people i think have hinted at similar things there's a famous google paper on machine learning as the high interest card of technical debt. And what they mean by that technical debt is that you're deploying systems that require potentially a lot of maintenance. So I think of machine learning system design as the sort of set of techniques we need to use to fix the technical debt, prevent it from happening, and all sorts of things like downstream fairness and uh, quality control. Because the way that um, software engineering got around technical debt which was also there was um by improving practices about how software was deployed and managed and increasing the amount of testing before deployment and it seems clear that, that we need improved practices around that for our machine learning systems i'm certainly not saying i have all the answers but but i think the three d's is a sort of starting point so so lay them out for me what are the three d's how should i be thinking of them? is that do they have to come in that order all that good stuff I think there's, there is certainly a conflating. They definitely come in the order of D, D, D. You can't change that order. I think certainly the, the three Ds I think of are data design and uh, deployment. And the, there's a pervading thing which I'm going to say is that I think that the first thing we need to do is change our culture around systems design to what I would say is data first. But I'm not going to put data first. But we do need a data first culture. So what do I mean by that? I mean that I think at the moment, a lot of our complex systems deployment is software first. And software first means we stand up software systems, we look at the quality of them, the scalability of those systems, and we monitor our effectiveness by sort of quality measures around that, like, you know, how long our service is up and so on and so forth. And we have a lot of testing approaches to not deploy broken things within that. So continuous deployment allows us to sort of deploy 
updates. And it's set around the idea of decomposability. So um, we separate our problem into separate parts. That's key. So, and, and then we different teams own the different parts, these decomposable parts. And, and, and I guess the first point I want to make is that a software-first culture is a necessary but not sufficient condition for what I see as a data-first culture. But before we do sort of data, I, I want to sort of focus a little bit on another of the Ds, design. So the design is important because of the decomposability issues. I think we're very used to software decomposition into parts that can operate Given the definition of an interface, which is what normally we would call in the form of an API, that those parts operate separately. Machine learning also needs to do that. And I think we're sort of constrained in how we, I, I sort of often think, so Andrew Ng has this nice thing he says, which is that a task that's suitable for automating through machine learning is the sort of task that a human might be able to do with, I can't remember how much time, he says something like half a second or less, you know. So they don't have to think about it. It's just there. So you can recognize things in image. So, so this kind of works. Like if you can, I mean, I can't translate French into English that quickly, but people who can, they can do it very quickly, right? I think that that's an interesting starting point. And so the sort of thing you can automate with machine learning is maybe, maybe that's not a full description, but it's a nice starting point. You've got a whatever your complex task that you want to break down, you've got to break it down into decomposable parts that um, are of that form and that I can now replace with a machine learning algorithm. So if I'm building a driverless car, I, I don't, in some sense, maybe I could do that end to end because that feels like I can drive naturally. But actually, people don't seem to be doing that. They seem to be doing things like, I'm going to do lane detection, and that's a separate task from pedestrian detection, and that's a you know separate task from maybe cyclist detection. And I'm, I'm going to do each of these as a separate subtask, you know, and then I need to compose these together into an overall system. So I think of the design step as that type of decomposition, but it's got particular challenges because of this problem of coevolution. So what do I mean by that? That these subsystems, which are data-driven, tend to feed each other. They're often not perfect. If the first thing in the web browser is the named entity recognizer, but it, it's not 100% accurate, it feeds a subsystem that is maybe classifying given named entities what the intent of the query was somehow using other data. If the named entity recognizer is weak in some way, then the data that's being fed into the downstream uh, intent classifier, if that's what's in the system, is compensating for that. And improving the named entity recognizer doesn't necessarily improve the um, overall performance. And that's a lack of decomposability. And that's entering our systems. And I think we have the mindset that everything's decomposable and it's still the right mindset to have. We've got that lack of decomposability. And what you actually get, I think, is a sort of co-evolution effect. It's something that Popper said in the answer to the question, which comes first, the chicken and the egg? He said, neither they co-evolved. So th there's the same sort of issue here with the named entity recognizer and the intent classifier in our artificial example is that they've co-evolved from the data that they've seen together and they're, they're cooperating together. And whatever work, you know, and maybe that named entity recognizer is being used in other subsystems for something else. That's great reuse of things. I mean, that's ideal if we can do that. Uh, so it's trying to do named entity recognition, not just for the downstream intent, but it's trying to do something else. But there'll still be this sense in which things co-evolve. So we lose that decomposability. 
somewhat. And I think that that's an important new sort of tension. I mean, new, it's not new for people who've worked on these systems, but it's something that can happen in software engineering, but it happens much worse in um, machine learning. I guess the next thing is that even we decompose those tasks, one of the and these sort of integrate together. The data and the design are there together because can we get the data to actually deliver on those subtasks? So what we're sort of seeing is not people building general intelligences. We see that people are decomposing into subtasks and they're constrained by what I just said, but also the data availability. And there's a lot of work put into labeling data in order to make that possible. So if, if let's take the car example. If I'm going to do pedestrian detection, then typically I will now need a large label data set of pedestrians in different circumstances in images and laser range uh, scanning and sonar and radar and whatever else I'm using. The data collection there, so the data availability for that becomes a significant constraint. But th there's also this aspect of making your system data first. because So, so I, I don't know if I've mentioned this analogy on the program. I think I have, but this sense of data science as debugging instead of data science as programming. The way we tend to operate with data, the role of a data scientist is typically not, I mean, they spend, okay, so the analogy, just to re recap it, is the role of a data scientist is as if you found a USB stick on the floor and you know on that USB stick there's some really important API call you've got to make from some code that someone's written who you don't know. And you also suspect that they may have written some dodgy code in there or some adversarial code. And your task is to sort of find which API call to make on that USB stick. Now, that's a big task. Um, and the, how are you going to do that? And the answer is sort of very, very carefully. Because you know somehow, somehow you know that this is going to improve your system overall, but you also know that if you do this wrong, it could harm your system. So if it were code, you would spend a lot of time debugging, trying different calls in a safe environment before you deployed, writing test code around what you were doing, and then um, eventually coming up with one or two lines that um, are the thing that you want to deploy. And those one or two lines are going to be something like, I'm going to do a feature extraction on this way, in effect, on real data, followed by I'm going to run this neural network or this SVM or whatever I chose, whatever I think worked. But it's worse than that because the, the, the problem is that the code on the USB stick is evolving over time. So you do all this work and then you deploy it into the environment, but actually the real the real data is... Either either the USB stick has the sort of training data, but the test data evolves as the environment changes. Or even in extraordinary cases, some of these systems are launched at such scale is the presence of the system can change the data. So the fact that you launch the system changes the code on. So that's kind of pretty complex. So it's not really a USB stick. It's like a folder in the cloud that someone who you don't know has access to. Stuff is changing and you have to continue to like try to change with it or follow those changes or be able to predict around those changes. So you've got to have the test code and that comes down to, I think now with GDPR things, we, we're going to want things around fairness. And if there's, if there's significant decisions at the end of what you're doing, these type of checks that what you're doing is still valid, that you're not damaging your business, that you're being fair to your customers, that all these sort of things that need to be carefully thought about. These are the sort of equivalent to regular software engineering tests that need to be deployed around the data. But that's kind of, so you see where I'm going a little bit with the data first architecture, because basically you see that data is the new software. I, I don't think I'm the first, certainly not the first at this occasion person to say that, but 
when you think about it in that, I mean, it, it now seems easy, right? Because now we've said, oh, it's debugging. So we just have to go to software engineering textbooks and look at the processes for debugging. And there aren't any because all the processes for debugging are don't have bugs. Work very hard to ensure you don't ship bugs and then work hard to be able to correct them when they do occur on those accidental occasions, right? So this testing culture is, and this code reviewing and all this type of thing is there to sort of prevent that. So we definitely need to transfer all those cultures across. And a lot of people are doing this debugging in things like Jupyter Notebooks, which are fantastic, but they're not fully equipped to a lot of these tasks yet. So, you know, things like code review, I think is, is not, in data science, or and we don't the equivalent of code review, whatever that looks like. Um, you know, the, the challenge is with reconstructing that analysis are hard. Like you're trying to reconstruct someone's debugging, so recording and storing that analysis so someone else can see what the thought process is. This is a known sort of challenge in statistics: the reproducibility of a statistical analysis, and there's, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, so so I think that comes in um, sort of. With, it's there with the design, but I sort of place it across design and data. The data quality assessment. So I've sort of advocated for data readiness levels, which I think is gaining some traction as a way of trying to have a shared language around. So, so when you do all that work for cleaning up the data, how do you make sure that the work you've done is reusable and discoverable by others? You now need ecosystems for that. So like, it's like someone's partially debugged this USB stick. How can we register what they've done? Because we don't want to repeat that. I mean, the analogy I have there, it's kind of like a stream where we're trying to get data from, but the stream is polluted. And at the moment, we're all going to the stream and, and getting our own pot of water and purifying it independently rather than purifying the stream. So data, data first implies that we don't care. Well, we do care about the inputs to our system, but we really care about the outputs of our system. So we care about whatever nodes there are in this subsystem, the decomposition. We care an enormous amount about the outputs and monitoring those outputs and what the data quality is around those outputs. So we stand that up as the thing that we're saying, this is what I do. It's not just the software service is a part of that because that's the reliability but um you know the verifiability of the data that you're producing and the sort of data qualities in those senses that's kind of one of the things data readiness levels are designed to address but just the notion that i purify the stream rather than i purify the input so but there's an interesting boundary there because people are using the stream for different purposes so I may be wanting to make a cup of tea but if i turn the stream into tea everyone else might be a bit pissed off so, so, so you have to decide what is the tea water boundary, what, what you choose to purify. And data readiness levels are, are designed to create a language a little bit around how you make that reusable. But it's clearly a waste of effort if we're all going to the stream and performing the first seven steps every time we dip into it. So if we're all picking up the USB stick and performing the same steps. So there's this sort of, um, there's a lot of stuff around process and how we set up better to do this. I'm, I'm certainly not saying I've got all the answers. I'm perhaps mentioning some of the issues. I've, tried to flesh out some of those answers in uh, data readiness levels and, and, and this, this type of thinking. So the final D is deployment. And what we need to see in deployment today is uh, monitoring of these systems in practice. So just like software systems are tested as we um, deploy new components, in machine learning, because the data is changing the way our systems perform, we need continuous monitoring of that performance of these subsystems once they're deployed. 
and coming up with standardized ways of doing that such that the machine learning design engineer can deploy into the ecosystem of decision-making, knowing that these tests are already in place, these equivalents of tests, these monitoring systems are already in place, that they don't have to, for every model they deploy, reinvent the wheel, because a bunch of these tests, in terms of uh, how your model is performing on uh, recent data versus how it was uh, performing on test data extracted from closer to your training data, these things are standardized or should be standardized or um, what your fairness criteria is and how you're monitoring to ensure that something hasn't changed such you're uh, violating your fairness criteria. Because that sort of code on that USB stick is changing, we need to be continuously testing a sort of, I mean, it's not quite a, uh, it's confusing to call it regression tests because regression tests, regression means something different from uh, regression. But there's something related to a regression test is whether the thing I deploy works uh, in a backward compatible way with everything that's sort of pre-existing by my understanding. I'm not a software engineer, but this is a sort of forward regression test. It's a progression test. Let's call it that. Progression testing. But we've just invented a new term progression testing and maybe someone's already identified this and called it somewhere else but uh, use this term instead progression testing progression testing meaning as we move forward is the model still running according to our expectations because people will deploy software based on how it's performing in a given moment but what we need to do and that that was kind of okay when things were decomposable and there wasn't this dynamic world around the software but now there is we need some form of uh, testing to monitor those deployments in practice so that's the sort of final d thinking about how we deploy and also that involves how we redeploy when we spotted an error. So how do we decide to check for what there's an error, what we define as an error, and how do we automate the process of redeployment to ensure those errors are picked up? Because the number of these subsystems we'll deploy will be probably too many for us to want to actually have a sort of machine learning scientist turn up every time one of them is broken in the long term. Right. Absolutely. Well, we'll have more about the three Ds on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's question on Talking Machines is about fairness and transparency tools. I've recently seen a number of tools focused on fairness and transparency be released by some of the large industry players. The AI Fairness 360 Toolkit from IBM and the What If Tool from Google. What do you think of these tools and what do you think it's going to take for the field to actually use these things? So, Neil, we're seeing this sort of everybody rush in. It seems like there's a lot of great stuff out there. But what do you think about these things? I think it's, um, I mean, it's got to be a good thing that people are thinking about this and producing tools. One problem we have, I think, is that it's easy uh, in academia to think about fairness in theory, but it's a different matter to deploy algorithms that are fair in practice. And I would interpret both of these things, which are very released very shortly after one another, as indicators that um, large industry players are thinking about how that looks in practice. And it's nice, actually, because we can relate it a little bit to the discussion of machine learning systems design and where this fits in, because I think it's fitting in in almost across the board. One might immediately say, well, oh, fairness, that's, that's at the deployment. Well, no, it's at the design, clearly, as well. And it's at the data. Particularly, I like the um, the sort of sense of the uh, the what if toolkit is seems very uh, focused on the 
an ability to sort of look at the data and start asking questions about the data. I, I think that it goes beyond fairness in that sense. I think it's much more about getting data understanding. And in that sort of challenge of data readiness, where we're trying to go from the polluted stream to the clean stream, and indeed the clean water to the cup of tea or whatever, what I think that I'm excited about as we explore these tools across the boundary of academia and industry is that we will start to evolve what best practice looks like in both understanding the data and creating those progression tests. Quite a useful term that is. The progression tests, you know, because one challenge with fairness is, is what is the, the right definition of fairness for a given task? So fairness is contextual. That's very clear. That kind of needs to be thought about in the design and during the data stage. But then that needs to be monitored, that needs to be recorded, what the notion of fairness was and monitored in the deployment phase. My feeling is this is above the standards at which we can achieve today. And that is because there's a lack of these type of standardized tools and a lack of understanding of what the best practice might be around processing. I often say that as far as data and machine learning are concerned, we're in the 1980s of software engineering. Certain things are understood, certain bad practices are known, but you know, there's still people writing go-tos. I love go-tos and uh, all that sort of thing because we haven't sort of got a real sense of it. The danger, what went wrong in software engineering is that people tried to over-formalize it from an academic perspective um, without taking into account how people were writing software in practice. So the sort of first wave of formalized software engineering was very unwieldy and, you know, was eventually sort of replaced by this sort of current paradigm around agile programming or test-orientated software engineering, which I think emerged more from observing how productive programmers worked in practice. And I, I think tools like this are great help to developing that understanding. And it's sort of really critical that the conversation between academia and industry is really tight and close so that we, we, we move as rapidly as possible to a good understanding of how to, uh, how to do fairness well in our deployed machine learning systems. Yeah, and it's really interesting on the What If Tool website, they uh, one of the references they list is that paper that we talked about several episodes ago, Counterfactual Explanations Without Opening the Black Box from Middlestat, Russell, and Watcher. So it's, it's really interesting to see these ideas evolve and then have life in the, um, I don't know, saying the real world doesn't sound right, but in the applicable world there, that's probably the best way to put it. Well, how cool is that? Because in, in some sense, I think, you know, one of the reasons I was excited about that paper was because it was combining a philosopher, a legal expert, and a machine learning expert to sort of really drive an attempt at a practical solution for a problem. And of course, the thing it was missing was someone that was going to deploy some of these ideas in practice and bring them to the feet of software engineers or data engineers or, or whoever we've got doing this stuff. And, you know, here we can see it completing the circle. And, um, you know, I can be as cynical as they come about uh, some of the efforts to talk about this, uh, these things and to sort of capitalize on this as an area. But here's a real example of where people talking about, well, not just talking, doing, making suggestions is, is then being realized in practice. You know, we don't know that this is going to be the final tool set, but without the creation of these type of tool sets, um, we, we can't come to the uh, next iteration of what the next one, what's missing and what we might like to improve. It's exciting. 
And uh, I think it's sort of, by the way, I think it's also, um, there's this sort of, sometimes there's this narrative in the media that says that sort of machine learning researchers don't care about these things and, uh, you know, and or even big companies don't. Well, you know, that's maybe a convenient narrative, but this is this is the evidence that this is all state of the art stuff. And it's coming from people who are involved in machine learning research and people who are involved in machine deploying machine learning in the real world. I'm not saying that everyone is caring about these things as much as possible, but there's, there's certainly a lot of cool work amongst people who are responsible for uh, deploying these systems. Yeah, absolutely. And and on that sort of theme, the 360 Fairness Toolkit from IBM, um, which I probably just mangled the name of, the, the toolkit from IBM is, is very much a developer's tool, but they have some really interesting resources and thinking on their site about open source and culture and being able to parse these things and being able to have an open conversation about it. And one thing that I'm really excited about on the What If tool, if you look at their demos, this, I think, is a really interesting piece for a lay person to be able to understand what the concepts of fairness, transparency, interpretability, explainability actually mean and actually look like in action when we're talking about these technologies. So I think that even just having a demo that's that's written at the level that a person who has read a bunch of Wired articles and is sort of excited about that general thinking can understand is a huge step in being able to have the technological literacy for everybody to be able to see how these tools impact them and, and how they're actually being used. I think it's really amazing. Yeah, I think that's a great point, really well made, that actually um, they've done a really nice job of uh, bringing that closer to people in a way that they can understand the issues. That, that's vital as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we'll have more on these tools from IBM and, and Google and, and a couple of others on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Adria Gascon of the Alan Turing Institute. And when we got a chance to sit down and talk with him at ICML, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? So I started my PhD in logic-related stuff, like very theoretical computer science. And then in the third year of my PhD, I went to the States. And then at the SRI, the Stanford Institute, I finished my PhD where I was while I was there. And then I started, you know, drifting into more applied stuff, uh, formal methods, cryptography. Also started working with cryptographers there, like Mariana Raikova was there at that point. She introduced me to some crypto, and then I ended up working in, into cryptography and machine learning when I moved back to, to Europe afterwards. And now I'm in London, yes. So Fantastic. We're talking at ICML, and you have a, a paper, two papers, I believe, Tapas and Blind Justice. Can you tell me a little bit about the Blind Justice paper? Okay, so this Blind Justice paper, from my perspective, is like a, an application of a multi-party computation, which is something that I'm familiar with. So I, I, I work on using these techniques for training models, using data held by different parties in a, way, in a way in which the parties don't have to share the data with each other. And in that paper, we use uh, these kind of techniques for learning a fair model in a way in which uh, the users get some guarantees in terms of uh, how much is disclosed about their like, sensitive attributes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Tell me about the, the tapas paper. It's an acronym for something much more complicated, right? Yes, yes. It took us some time to come up with that. <laughs> so tapas has to do with uh, some tricks. That's the T. Tricks uh, for evaluating uh, neural networks over encrypted data. So we essentially show what tricks you can do that would accelerate how you can how to accelerate the evaluation of these neural networks on something called homomorphic encryption, which is a kind of encryption that essentially allows you to, or allows the server which would be evaluating this neural network to do that as if the server was essentially blindfolded, so they can operate on your data without actually looking at your data, which sounds like magic, but uh, can be can be done. Yes, that's fantastic. So, so tell me about how these two papers fit into the larger questions around cryptography and security that you're interested in. What are the big the big things you want to ask? I, I think that uh, one of the holy grails everyone is after from different perspectives and, and in different ways. In, within different communities is the secure outsource computation where you want to essentially upload your data to Amazon or Azure or whatever and have them you know run programs on on this data uh, without ever looking at it so you don't you want to you you want them to run essentially I don't know you maybe want to outsource the computation of your taxes and then you what you do is you send your your taxes data and then they do the taxes for you i lived in the states i would use this turbo tax thing I, i'm not sure if i can like make public, but i remember i just came to mind so yeah. so i had to send my w2 or whatever it was called right? And, right and and then they would do everything for me but this has some sensitive information like who's my employer your social security uh, number which yeah. is like super secret yeah. in the states <laughs> for some reason i then we're all very worried about our social security numbers it's like a very secret number yes <laughs> which i don't know exactly why but everyone's scared about losing it yeah, yeah but it's printed on like a terrible very floppy little card it's awful yes yeah yeah i've had i had one of those yeah, yeah i had to go and collect my social security number yes so yes so it includes that so you'd like to send an encryption of that to to this like company so that they can return return an encryption of uh, your the amount of the, that you're getting back or how much you have to pay without them without you having to actually disclose that to them. Ideally, you would like to do that with arbitrary computations, right? So an encrypted Amazon web services kind of thing. So that's one of the, you know, holy grail. So they're going after that from the hardware community with the SGX and that stuff. Also from the crypto community with the fully homomorphic encryption. So this is a very, very, very big picture, right? So of, of uh, and then... The same problem in the setting where you have uh, data distributed among several parties where mm -hmm. I might have, we, we might be like two different companies with uh, maybe banks or, or like a different like departments of the government or something like this with uh, different kinds of data that we would like to combine to build a, build a model. Mm -hmm. For example, give me a, let me give a concrete example. So we have, it could be three hospitals with uh, complementary data. Mm -hmm. Like uh, maybe one hospital has data about like uh, blood samples and the other one has data about like cancer or something. Mm -hmm. You want to combine this data to build a more accurate model, but you don't want this data to be shared with each yeah. other. So it has the same flavor, but in a distributed in a distributed setting. So these are the this has to do with the big picture. Yeah. Of course, like things are more complicated as you zoom in, but uh, this would be the, the like. Uh, high-level perspective of these two papers. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And you organized the a workshop on fat issues for DALI in 2018, is that right? Yes, so I, I, I took care of the privacy in, in, the, in, in, that, in that workshop. We had uh, someone from 
Google giving a talk about uh, their efforts in federated learning, which has mm -hmm. to do with the second ca the category of, of problems, and someone from Microsoft Research talking about uh, the hardware-based approaches to the first kind of problem, mm -hmm. uh, which has to do with uh, yeah, using trusted hardware to do this competition in the cloud uh, in a way in which you get uh, this kind of privacy guarantee. So this was this was very good, I think. Like, uh, It's very nice to see like uh, different approaches to the same problem. Yeah. And in many cases, they are incomparable. So it's not it's not <laughs> yeah. clear who's the winner. It's not clear who's, which one is going to be uh, adopted. But And they are, of course, also incomparable in the sense that uh, even if homomorphic encryption is usually presented as something general in, 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 that allows you to do any computation and, it, and that in principle enables this outsource, secure outsource computation, in, in practice it's, things are more complicated, right? So yeah. we, you want to build a protocol to do something and then you may use homomorphic encryption in this like sub-protocol of your protocol. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, even if we tend to explain things in a very general way, in practice we use these tools as sub-protocols in, in bigger like protocols and right. like surgical is, is the right yeah yeah the right yeah. term yes i think nice. yeah. interesting so what do you think is the next question that needs to be either asked or answered to really move the field around privacy and security forward what do you think is going to be the next thing that's sort of coming down the pike that will tell us like what is the winner or what is going to be the the most readily usable solution so i, I think Something that uh, we, we need to develop in, in general is a better understanding and better intuition of uh, how different techniques for privacy compose with each other. Mm. So you might have heard about uh, differential privacy, for mm. example, as, as, as a technique that is very successful and, and very useful. And then you heard, you've heard about SGX, maybe homomorphic encryption, multi-party computation. All of this gives some privacy guarantee and... Which, which, but the, the, what the word privacy means in, in all of these contexts is not the same, and this is and this is tricky, and this happens with fairness in a sense, right? So they, again, you know, like they have all these definitions of fairness, and and one of them when so, I think that the problem is not that complex in in the, in in, pri in privacy, but we need to we need to understand well, and industry needs to understand well as well that uh, when you're trying to provide you know like a privacy guarantees for a, like my, my, in a machine learning tasks mm -hmm. there's more than one notion of privacy that you need to you need to incorporate into your system and that's that's tricky uh, that's tricky because they the interplays between these te technologies are not always obvious mm -hmm. you cannot make it's very easy to make silly mistakes like addressing different one kind of privacy and claiming that you're addressing also the other one right. okay so right. very high level i think that in understanding the interplays of different like privacy definitions and somehow being being able to express concisely what are the guarantees of our given system is something that would really help into having privacy by design becoming a well-defined thing as opposed to something vague or something that uh, may mean exactly what the person that designed the system means and nothing else. <laughs> So do you think that there's there's some sort of question around communication? Like, do we just need to, like, simply expand our vocabulary around privacy and start using more specific descriptors? Yeah, and I, I think people are already doing this in a sense. When I talk to people about differential privacy in combination with uh, homomorphic encryption, mm -hmm. things like this, mm -hmm. they... 
usually have a term for for that for yeah. this distinction. I don't think we've converged to to exactly the high level terms that we should use. I I, I usually call the differential privacy guarantee privacy in the disclosure or yeah, something like this of data or in, and privacy in the computation or something like this. Some some people call it input privacy and it depends. But I th- I think we'll we'll eventually converge to to that maybe by the means of a very nice book or a very nice sur- survey or something yeah. <laughs> or something like this but i agree this is definitely definitely needed yes yeah. so it's going to take some sort of some sort of survey research or some sort of like consensus yeah 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 some someone maybe someone very famous making like very fa- famous statements or something yes excellent and so how long have you been um with the with the touring i think i moved there February or March last year, so uh, about a year and a half. And how has your work been going there? I know they have several different teams, groups working on on questions like this. It's been it's been really nice in that uh, I've I've managed to do lots of interdisciplinary work work in, in for what I understand uh, in terms of inter- interdisciplinarity. So this like a blind justice work is is is, is that in a sense because. I don't know much about fairness, and the, some of the other authors didn't know anything about multi-party computation when we started uh, this, other than that this is possible. Yeah, and yeah, then if, if, you, if, you, if you read the paper and you know a bit of uh, both fairness and MPC, you'll clearly see that. It's like, oh, this paper is clearly one person with MPC expertise getting together with, you know, like other person with this fairness expertise and somehow chatting to converge to what kind of properties you would like and whether they they can be achieved or not and at which cost and yeah, yeah. so I, th- I think this really reflects my the, the my experience of the touring and this paper as well as the the other paper that the tapas paper is also an instance of this kind of interaction so it's it, it's been really nice and exactly what one would expect of a, of a place like this so of course I can, I can I still work with people like from my community but in, on a day-by-day basis uh, I can I can have this kind of interactions that otherwise are, are I think difficult to have in a in an environment where you are like a, maybe in the context of a department or yeah sort of siloed with other people who are thinking about the same questions that you might be thinking sort of in a similar way which is good I think it has advantages yeah. but uh, it, it, it's a, a different set of advantages so it's yeah. it's very nice yeah so what questions are you excited about asking next okay so I think that we can still so more generally for this setting where we have like uh, several parties building a model together. Mm-hmm. I think there's still like a uh, room for improvement. So we can we can try to emulate the progress that was being done in the in the setting where the computation is done in the clear, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. try to essentially port those tricks to the setting where the computation is, is done on encrypted on encrypted data or, or using these multi-party computation techniques and this requires essentially understanding very well these tricks from the machine learning community and and, and applying them or reproducing them in a, in a secure way which requires like designing new protocols so this is something i'm i'm excited about like making like these protocols more more scalable and like make them scale to real world applications. So that's that's one aspect of, of, of my research that I am excited about. And then something that I think would be also really nice is uh, coming up with new definitions of, of privacy that 
capture better what we actually want to do. Like, uh, especially in this context where you have like several different definitions that uh, combine, sort of define what you really want, and but combining them is tricky. Maybe you one can find definitions that actually do what what you would expect of what what you would expect when you say privacy in a, in a particular setting. So yeah. these are two things that I think I find exact, exciting, yeah. Well, Adria, thanks you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. It's been great. Yeah. I've had lots of fun. Adria Gascon of the Alan Turing Institute in the UK. Really fascinating to hear him talk about the advancements being made in uh, applicable privacy. Well, that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. Tune in next episode. <laughs>